Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack all those numbers behind each and every headline. My name is Alex and I'm here with the team. I have Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hello. Hi, how's everybody? Uh, Natasha, you were talking you know, earlier this week about how, <laughs> how easy this week was and how it was flying oh. by. So let's start with you. How, how are you doing? I'm not okay. I'm recuperating. I, I think I jinxed myself and I forgot to drink water for 24 hours. Uh. And so today is a weird day. Yep. I've been there. But listen, we are going to get through this because there is so much to talk about. And actually, this is one of the funnest shows we've ever put together because of the diversity of topics. Yes. We're going to talk about Facebook because we have to, and it's name changed. We have many, many opinions about this. We also have funding rounds from Vertical Oceans, Super Plastic, and Modern Age, of which I understand two not three. So we have a little work to do. We're also going to talk about founders becoming investors, what's going on in the Chinese venture capital world, and then dig a little bit into some mega fintech raises, including a scoop from our own Marianne. So it's going to be a real treat. But first, ladies and gentlemen, King Zuck has decided that he shall rename the kingdom and it shall no longer be called the book of face. It shall be called the something of else. Shall we lay bets (laughs) about what it's going to be or, uh, or are we just going to wait for October 28th? I aggregated some of my favorite responses on Twitter of people guessing what the next name of Facebook would be. As we kind of just hinted, like Mark has announced that they're going to change Facebook's name to focus on the metaverse. So I'm just going to run through some names and I want you guys to tell me your favorites. Face off. No. Meta. Meta. Just meta. Just, (laughs) just meta. (laughs) Augment. (laughs) Deface. No. (laughs) Veritas. (laughs) Uh, well, you can even call it Project Veritas if you want to find a company with a similar amount of brand equity in the United States market. My favorite, though, for sure, was Tronk. I just thought that that was the perfect callback. I, I can't believe my suggestion didn't make it into this mix. I'm what hurt. was yours? I, I said they should call it Verizon Media Group because then everyone would ignore its existence. Oh, my oh God. My Pop off. Pop off. Oh. And, then, and then that tweet went pseudo viral and I was like, ah, everyone's going to see it now. OK, now we have to link it in the show docs. So if you missed it like me. All right. OK, but jokes aside, Facebook is going to be doing a rebrand. We also know they're hiring 10,000 people in Europe over the next five years to focus on the metaverse. Um, to me, the, the announcement that Facebook was going to be a, become a metaverse company felt like one of those like corporate huzzah moments. That wasn't going to be anything. And then they keep talking about it, Marianne. So they seem serious, I'd say. Clearly, they do seem serious about it. And I think it did. A lot of us didn't take it that seriously until now. But even now, I'm still very skeptical. And I feel like this is a big marketing push to try to make itself look different and to distance itself from the lot of the negative things that Facebook has become associated with over the past couple of years. It's really giving me the same vibe of Google Ventures rebranding to GV. And then every time we write about GV making an investment, we have to add that parenthetical. And obviously, I don't think GV did it with the same sort of pressure that Facebook has. But I just feel like this will be a parenthetical that will always follow it for the rest of time. So I don't get it from a journalism point. Google and Alphabet too, right? I mean... Yeah. I mean, how many times have we written Alphabet, the parent company of Google, comma, which also owns Waymo, a self-driving car startup, recently announced that. And it's like the worst sentence in all of English. So what Facebook is going to do is make me abuse more commas and get me in trouble with Henry Pickovet. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> That's the takeaway here. <laughs> to this day, who calls Google Alphabet? investors on the call. I think that's that's the only time it's actually used. But I mean, okay, the alphabet thing made some sense, though, because Google did have a number of other bets that it now calls other bets. It has a Skunk Works team. It was building lots of stuff. So why not have a stable? Okay, fair enough. Facebook's case, 
is this just a, 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 a repost or a response to the fact that its core social applications have reached their peak and have already gone over the top and they need to have a next chapter? Because certainly, you know, Facebook.com is not going to power Facebook corporate entity for the next 20 years. If Facebook at all was wondering if people were questioning how serious they were about the future of them and the metaverse, like this rebrand will be their answer to that, Alex. It'll be like, okay, we're not tiptoeing into the metaverse. We are committing to it so much so that we are changing the loudest thing about us, which is our name. <laughs> okay, so we have a couple of funny rounds to get through. There's a company called Superplastic that just raised $20 million. And what they're building, a number of synthetic characters, they're based on nothing from the real world. They're made up, which is fine. And what they've done is they've put them into different social media platforms, into different games, and kind of created these personas around them, generating a lot of valuable intellectual property or IP. Are these characters are described as deranged and violent? And aspiring to be a fucked up Disney? I mean, yeah. Disney's pretty fucked up, but I mean, <laughs> directionally. I, so, so Marianne, so you had a negative reaction to that. I got excited. Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't say negative so much as confused, you ah. know? The fact that Superplastic has been able to land really lucrative partnerships with this as their branding, to me, like, I don't know, adds a layer of validation in a way. So I'll give listeners kind of an example of one of these fucked up sorts of <laughs> characters. Gojimon is one of Superplastic central characters. It they intermittently torture their counterpart while wearing Gucci gear, and that is one of their sponsorships. Gucci, Gucci is paying for their for their clothes to be worn with someone that tortures them. And I don't want to sound like dismissive of the entire universe, but I think like that is the use case that we're seeing brands maybe find marketing or opportunity in. So Gucci Bruh. is paying Superplastic to adorn one of its characters in Gucci attire while it does bad things. Exactly. And, and I guess like, okay, like let's take away the negative part of this. Okay. The way that our producer, Chris Gates, put it that helped me get on board a little bit is that super plastic is a continuation of what we've seen something like Disney do. They create these characters that everyone falls in love with. Maybe super plastic is just trying to be a more realistic or tongue in cheek Disney world. Yeah, no, and I think we've seen people really get into um, artificial or synthetic characters, not only from the kind of Mickey Mouse era, but all the way through to the modern time. I mean, like people dress up in like League of Legends character costumes and go to events and they go to, you know, uh, esports tournaments. There's precedent. Yeah. Yeah. And so like this sounds silly and there is an NFT component to this, but I was negative about this when I started and I, I ended up being relatively OK with it by the end. Well, Superplastic already has millions of followers on Instagram, TikTok. It's sold millions in NFTs and has a big Discord community. So it's clearly resonating with a lot of people. I got to get on some more Discords. All right, let's drop the metaverse and NFTs and the digital world entirely. And let's go a hardcore physical and talk about how people are going to grow shrimp down the street from your house. There's a company called Vertical Oceans, and they are going to build what are they calling aqua towers inside of cities to grow shrimp. They just raised three and a half million dollars. And Natasha, the thing that stood out to me was just how big the shrimp market is. Oh, my God, totally. So it's a 50 billion dollar a year market globally. Thing that like I think has really struck me about looking into fishing more was like I watched this Netflix documentary called Seaspiracy a few months ago, and it talks about documenting the harm that humans do to marine species through fishing. And shrimp was like this huge portion of that documentary. I just want to throw some like stats out there. That's okay for sure. a second. 
So the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations estimates that 87% of wild fish and shellfish populations are fully exploited, overexploited, or depleted. Also, just due to shrimp farms, it's estimated that since 1980, a total of 1.5 million hectares of mangroves, which are habitats for lots of fish, have been lost. So shrimps are having a massive impact, something as futuristic sounding as a building to grow fish vertically sounds futuristic, but it feels like a current need. It's a mystery to me why people eat these little crustaceans because they look disgusting and they smell bad and they're expensive and they also go bad and will give you a horrible gastro. So like to me, there's not a lot of benefits, but I will (laughs) say on the point of the environment, I wrote a book called Cod. Uh, which was a history of a particular fish that was overfished uh, around the world and essentially killed off to a large degree. And that really kind of opened my eyes to the impacts of commercial fishing and so forth. So vertical oceans trying to help grow what they kind of describe as flavor equivalent shrimp in urban environments it was pretty exciting. I mean, I would just say don't eat gross things like shrimp, but people apparently will spend 50 billion a year. So maybe this is the way forward, Marianne. It's kind of like vertical farming, but for critters. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting that they can incubate the shrimp without chemicals or antibiotics, and they can do it out of season. So that also, this was interesting to me because they raised money in around a three and a half million dollar round led by Kosla Ventures. And that's the first time a major Silicon Valley fund has invested directly in an aqua or aqua culture startup. Yeah, it feels late, actually, given that we've heard about vertical farming now for, I want to say, five, 10 years, somewhere in there. Indie Bio is the accelerator that Vertical Oceans, which is a great name, came out of. They're a biotech accelerator, which I feel like we've started paying more attention to. They consistently are turning out startups solving deep tech, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. And because maybe a setup like YC doesn't really support something as like demand, I don't know, as infrastructure heavy as this kind of company. That might be the next accelerator for us to pay attention to. Let's move along to our next funding round. We are going to be talking about modern age, which I'm quite excited about, frankly. Everyone gets older. It's one of the things we all get to do as humans. And as it turns out, people deal with a lot of point solutions and disparate products as they try to deal with aging. Modern Age has raised a bunch of money, Natasha, to take this on. What was your take? Their whole pitch is that we are going to build this flagship clinic in New York, invest in a suite of tools so that people can be put in the driver's seat of their aging journey, which I think is kind of funny because obviously we can't control our aging. Like we are all doing it no matter what, but we can also benefit from piecemealing together different solutions to make us feel, look and think better. It also kind of fits into this trend of like longevity and like how an increased sense of mortality spurred by the pandemic has impacted the startups that VCs are funding. I feel like everyone's thinking about age and death a lot more. So that's kind of why I was first interested in modern age. Most interesting thing about what they're doing is is providing this kind of like one-stop shop because people, as we get older, everything changes, right? Hair, skin, your hormones, metabolism, you know, all of it. So normally to try to address each of these things, you'd have to see 10 different people. What they're pledging is you can just come to them and they'll help you with all of it. I think also people outside of the United States don't realize how weird our healthcare system is and how it's expecting you often to be very self-directed and know what to do. And as you know, I'm running through a little bit of the fertility gauntlet and it's amazingly complex. And the expectations of, of just knowing where to go and what to do at different times is kind of bonkers. And as you get older, you know, as you age, you might want ever so slightly more help in the process. So to me, there's, there's a great problem here. My question is, will Modern Age build a great business around it? And will it have kind of like venture scale returns? Because when I think of venture capital funded companies, I think high margins. And when I think healthcare, I don't exactly see 
that sort of thing coming around. So that's where I'm curious about. But certainly, I think thematically, I, I, I love it. And uh, just to put a, a cap on it, raised $27 million in a Series A led by Oak HCFT, which stands for Healthcare Fintech, but they acronymized it because they're cool. And uh, also GV and Juxtapose were in there. 17 employees currently shooting for 50 by the end of the year. So one to keep an eye on if you're into health tech. I think we can move on though, yeah? Let's do it. All right. So we are going to talk about Vibe Capital and Spearhead. Natasha, one of the best parts of being a reporter is getting to cover stories over a long period of time and seeing things come back around that you saw before. And I believe that plays into the story. Yeah. So Spearhead was a fund that was launched quite a while back, I guess three years ago, meant to help founders become angel investors and eventually top-notch VC investors. So Danny actually covered Spearhead from its initial fund to now. And I remember on the show a few months back, we were kind of questioning, like, is this going to help founders from underrepresented backgrounds actually start funds? Anyone can kind of raise a rolling fund these days. And kind of raising a $10 million fund doesn't mean much. When are we going to see someone raise like a $60 million fund? I was really excited that I saw Vibe Capital launch this week. Their CEO, Ankur Nagpal, was the founder of Teachable. He had an exit a few years back and is now starting his own solo GP fund. And he's a Spearhead graduate. So we kind of saw a full circle moment happen, proving that founders can do investing as more than like a hobby, but actually kind of make it their next job after their exit. So Spearhead gives founders money to invest to get them trained in this process. Anker went through that process back in the day, also founded a company, sold it, and is now raising a much larger fund. So he's kind of a, a Spearhead success story and also maybe a signpost about what's to come for founders who exit in the next couple of years. Is that fair? I think so. He is proof that like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of solo GPs out there these days. Ankur is making like an explicit promise to make sure half of his investments are international. So we're seeing the solo GP trend move outside the United States. He plans to live in India, Latin America, all over the world as he begins to invest in those companies. So I, I feel like we're seeing the trend kind of expand past the US too. That really struck me that he was planning to go physically live in these countries for like three or four weeks at a time. It's old school. When I asked him how he's been winning deals, he was like, I honestly just go meet them in person. And that helps a lot these days. The first kind of 10 investments from Vive Capital have our companies from Portugal, Kenya, Zambia, Canada, Pakistan, India and Chile. So it's working. But I would love to, I don't know, hear from both of you, like this idea of founders becoming investors has been controversial in the past. Some people think that founders should just stay founders. Some people think that investors, because they invest, shouldn't be founders. Like, I know we're going to talk about it next week more, but Marianne, what do you, what's your kind of first take on that? Yeah, I have some thoughts. It's kind of like, just because you're good at something, does that mean you can teach a class on it? Well, it's a similar thing to me, like just because you've built a successful um, startup and you, you did very well and had this great exit, does that mean that you are going to be a good investor? Not necessarily, right? It can happen, but it's not, it's not a given. Also in a twist, I did a story that published today about a former VC who used to invest a general catalyst who's now a founder. So it can go both ways. For sure. And we've often seen, or not often, but we have seen in the past VCs jump out of the venture capital category and land in a portfolio company that's struggling and then try to help turn them around. I've heard a couple of cases of that. I think the controversy comes in when founders are investors while they're founders. I think founders eventually putting together funds or working for a VC firm almost was like the emeritus retirement of well-known tech people back in the day. But now it seems that founders who are building companies are also investing and running Twitter meme accounts and et cetera. And you know, I, there's only so many hours in the day. And if I was a, an investor giving people money, 
and then they were turning around while also building something and raising their own money to go out and invest, I'd be like, bro, get one job. You have a hard one. Like, it isn't like founding a startup and trying to scale it is part time. Right. I think that's what happened with Superhuman. It got it was controversial for a while because Rahul, their co-founder, is doing like an, a micro fund and is scaling that. And people were like, dude, Superhuman hasn't launched a new update that's meaningful in like months, maybe years. So can you focus on that for a second? And- yeah. And I mean, quite <laughs> frankly, if I'm if I'm you know raising money, I want my investor to be like really focused. And like to your point, Alex, I mean, if you're spread thin, how focused are you going to be? I mean, how hands on are you going to be? So right. in the era of commodified capital services, hands-on attention, and showing up are pretty big things, and startup founders are famously time-strapped. So to me, that that resonates, but I will say, it's not like anyone cares about our opinions. They're still going to go out there and do this because people will give them money. So like, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I think like the, the takeaway after talking to Ankur and covering a few of these transitions happening is like, with more investors in the market, founders have a better chance of finding an investor that they actually get along with. Same way that what happens when you have more options of anything. I'm more bullish on former founders going the investor route because founders know how to talk to founders and there's like a special weight. The way that I like talking to a former journalist turned VC, I know you get me in a way that's different. So I feel like that sort of ethos is what is, is what's sticking with me for now. <laughs> the number of journalists who have become VCs is like four. <laughs> so, I mean, th- thanks for narrowing down who you've been talking to. <laughs> but I can see where it would be appealing to a founder to have an investor who's been there and experienced the same pains that they might be. The way this was always told to me back in the day was that you need to have operation experience or operational experience, which means having gone out there and gotten your hands dirty and learned something. You can't just get a, you know, a Stanford MBA, become a, a first year analyst at Sequoia and then kind of go out to the ranks because you don't know anything. And frankly, that's always resonated with me because if you don't actually know what it's like to fire somebody, telling someone to go fire some people, it's kind of ridiculous. And so there, there's a certain kind of like shared scars that I think are, are required to have the right level of empathy and also ruthlessness, frankly, to build a successful company because it's not like you're going to get to an IPO and everyone's going to like you. You're going to have a trail, a trail of pissed off people in your wake. And that's just business. So. Break some hearts. Totally. I'm excited to see Vibe Capital go international, but let's talk about more international news, actually surprising news that Alex, you wrote about this week about China, China and positive venture capital news. What is happening? Please tell us. I just want to celebrate how great of a segue that was. That was amazing. I was like, here (laughs) it comes. Oh, amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So uh, we've talked about China on the show off and on for a long time. And and it's funny how the story has changed. If you go back to like 2017, 2018, like the earlier equity days, uh, Mary and you and I were riding together back then. So like China was 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 blowing up. It was going to be challenging the U.S. for total venture capital investment. People were talking about how, you know, Chinese work culture inside tech companies was going to eat our lunch. And that really there was a, the question of like, will the U.S. remain its kind of central and dominant position inside the larger world of startups? And as it turned out, the answer was, well, no, China didn't take over. And in fact, uh, fell down the charts a little bit. But what we saw, even after the regulatory crackdown of the year, was an amazing quarter of venture capital results from China. This really surprised me, honestly. You know, as you mentioned, we we used to write about the great drop in funding in China. We had seen a big decrease. Shocked to read that it was like the best quarter ever. It's a record quarter for funding. It's, it's actually, well, you have to caveat a little bit. Uh, in Q2 of 2018, Ant Group, then I think it was called Ant Financial, raised okay. like a $14 billion Series B. 
And like it, it's it's around so large, you kind of just take it away. Now, in terms of deal count, this is the absolute best quarter Chinese startups have ever had. In terms of dollars raised, it's either the best or if you include that $14 billion round, the second best. But a superlative quarter after a, a series of very strong quarters for Chinese startups raising money, despite the fact that the Chinese government kneecapped a number of major tech companies that were also active investors. And so like to me, this is just perplexing. And I, I don't know how to explain it. That's the thing. I just, I just don't get it. The only way that I'm going to try to explain it is that you can be a company based in China and not be focusing on markets within China. And maybe that's what's happening here. Like some of the ed tech companies there are all setting their sights on India now. And so maybe the companies that are raising are very aware of their regulatory landscape and are not betting their entire company on what's kind of local to them. I don't know. A couple of numbers for you from the CB Insights Q3 report that I have been leafing through for some time. Total venture capital volume in China during Q3 2021 was around 25, 26 billion across about 2,400 rounds. So an enormous amount of money, an enormous amount of rounds. But Marianne, you know, I mean, like a third of the U.S. venture capital number for Q3. So like even though it is a superlative moment for, for China itself, it's still not close to taking the crown. It's kind of like competitive with Europe versus the U.S., there's been a lot of talk amongst certain quarters of American technologists about government regulation and what's reasonable and what should be done, say, with crypto regulation. And it's always very fine, I think, to have a perspective on where the government should go. Welcome to democracy. Participate. But I do think the U.S. government, and I, this is a weird thing to say, gets a bad rap sometimes. OK, because think about think about the business climate that, that we're talking about when we think about startups and how many companies, you know, form Delaware C-Corps, uh, even if they're based in Toronto or Mexico City or whatever. I mean, the U.S. market for startups is still really good. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the money would have gone somewhere else and it for just sure. hasn't. And so, like, you know, uh, two cheers for the American government. It feels weird to say, but all right. <laughs> I know it's very off brand for this show, but like I'll co-sign that for sure. All right. Yeah, <laughs> same. This has been Equity's patriotic experiment. <laughs> One thing I'll throw in there, though, and uh, we all know this, but it's worth repeating. Venture capital data is, is famously laggy. And that means that often you hear about a round, it was actually done six months ago. And so whenever you look at data from the venture capital world, you always consume one to three grains of salt and say, look, maybe this is a little bit delayed. It doesn't look delayed. It looks really strong, but maybe we'll see a weak Q4 in China that does tell us a little bit more about a changing um, appetite for investment in the country. There are still some major economic questions uh, there and as well as here, to be clear, but uh, a surprising result. But we can put that aside and we're going to bring our sights uh, down from the country level all the way to the company level, Marianne. And I, I think you have some news. Brex just raised $300 million at a... Are you ready for this? I'm ready oh, no. for billion valuation, which is just crazy. It's insane. 12.3. Okay. So back me up, Marianne. So um, when did Brex raise last before this and what was it worth then? Okay. Brex just raised, let's see, 425 million in April. It was valued at 7.4 billion at that time. Tiger Global led that round. Green Oaks is set uh, to be leading this round. Okay, so it, it picked up five billion dollars in value in like five months, basically, yeah. almost right. a billion mm-hmm. a month. That's insane. Yeah. Right. I wonder what. I mean, and this is a scoop, so please do your victory lap here. Like that is fantastic. Um, I am so curious, Alex, when you hear that they've almost added one billion in value per month, what do you think that they have done enough things to be warranted that? No, or no, are you no one does. No one does. Uh, Very fair. <laughs> all, all these valuations are forward-looking. 
And I think that's perfectly fine. But I think what Brex may have done is show an acceleration in one, two or three key metrics that point to a much more lucrative future. You're always buying the future value of a company. People always joke that, you know, it's the discounted valuations of their future cash flows or whatever. In startup terms, it's really kind of like looking ahead at future growth expectations and seeing what your your investment will be worth. And of course, the faster a company is growing, the less risk you take on because the more you pay and the faster it grows, well, then it kind of evens out. So I can totally see Brex having a great, you know, Q2, Q3 and raising some more money. But the scale of valuation appreciation still boggles my mind a little bit. I mean... We used to talk about how there were like 24 unicorns in the world. Well, it just added five unicorns worth of value in two quarters by itself. Oof. I, I don't know. If, I, that either makes sense or it doesn't. And it's not my money. But I, to me, it's still aggressive, at least. Marianne, you cover fintech doing this every single day. I would love to know kind of your first reactions and just honestly getting to the answer of what is going with this money. Well, first of all, Brex is supposedly on track to double its revenue this year. And that's a lot of what drove this round so soon and attracted all of these investors. One of the things I'm seeing, and especially in fintech, is that these companies are raising large rounds closer and closer together. Valuation is climbing faster than ever. It's kind of mind blowing. Like uh, I joked on Twitter about it, but it's really not a joke because it's true. It's like I'm getting pitches all the time from companies and I'm like, didn't I just write about you because they're raising so quickly? What does this mean for a customer or user? You know, I, I'm not really sure. For me, like if a company's valued at $12 billion, I'm going to be expecting a lot out of it. I just want to point out though that, you know, we were talking about this just a little bit ago because of Trip Actions and they're moving into the kind of the corporate spend space. There's also Airbase is in there and Ramp and that's just in the kind of US market. There's also international versions of these companies, you know, around the globe. To every time I see these companies raised now, I'm always like, is there an infinite amount of capital available for corporate cards and software? Because it seems to be bottomless. Yeah, I mean, Ramp raised earlier this year. Trip Actions just raised last week. Coincidentally, Green Oaks also led its round. How it's going to play out, though, will be interesting to watch. I mean, Alex, you made a really good point during our prep session yesterday about like, if Brex is just going to use the money to spend more on hiring, whatever. If it uses it to consolidate other companies or sorry, acquire other companies, then it gets interesting. And that's kind of like where my mind is at right now about like what could happen next for fintech. Like, are they going to acquire something that's going to add a whole new functionality to their suite of services? To your point, they just did make one acquisition their first in August. So I wouldn't be surprised if they are buying other ones. I mean, definitely with all the fintechs out there, we, as we've mentioned in the past, we're going to probably definitely see more consolidation. So I don't know for sure what they're going to be doing yet exactly with this capital, but wouldn't be surprised if acquisitions are a part of it. They did also announce their own API. Okay. So listen, the, the, the fintech deal world's crazy and the valuations are nuts, but that wasn't the only round that we heard about recently, Marianne. A deal, which is a D-E-E-L, Two E's. Yeah. Uh, also raised a bunch of money. What's going on there? Yeah, exactly. Another example, right? Deal raised $425 million in a Series D. They're valued at $5.5 billion. They more than tripled their valuation over the past six months. And Deal, for those who don't know, sorry, uh, they're a remote hiring startup. They help. This is really significant because they help companies like Coinbase, like Shopify, help onboard new employees in other countries and help pay them because it is a pain in the ass to pay people who live in another country. Companies like Deal to me are, are tapping into something that's, that's very material. Like 4,500 um, customers is an insane amount of money, uh, of activity and, and, and buy-in from the market. Right. And so, you know, shout out. I mean, that's cool. 
I don't know if they'll grow into that valuation by the time they go public, but certainly there's a real substance there to be sat upon. Yeah, agreed. And and also, so so sorry, Natasha. Really, one quick point. Deal in September 2020 raised 30 million dollars. So this is just again illustrative of the the crazy jump in in size, deal sizes, and valuation that we're seeing. So sorry, just had to it, point that out. No, it's it's important because it, it feels like you guys are both saying like more grounded in reality. Every founder we talk to these days is focused on hiring, and so when it comes to priorities and what they're going to spend SaaS subscription money on, it makes sense that it would be a company like Deal, which makes hiring a little bit easier and paying those people easier. Will Deal be able to um, to keep growing when the bubble pops? I don't know, but it feels like definitely one of those companies that is set to benefit while every startup is out there raising. It's kind of like the tide that lifts all boats and Deal is definitely one of those startups. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great note to end on. A rising tide does lift all boats, but do you know what comes after a rising tide? The other direction. And uh, <laughs> we are still here in like the startup endless summer. And, um, you know, just every quarter that goes by, we seem to set new records in different geographies and, and different categories and there's ever bigger rounds. I, I'm sure by this time next year, Brex will raise another chunk of money at like a plus $10 billion valuation because just because 5 billion isn't enough. Any signs, guys, that things are slowing down? I've got nothing, but I'm just Not curious if you all. have anything. It, it, things are only speeding speeding up, I think. I mean, by, if you take my inbox as any indication, the, the volume of pitches that I'm getting, it's just, it's mind blowing. It's crazy. The growth stage attitude is going to catch up with a lot of companies though. Like you can show growth in a time where everyone is growing, but what happens when some of those startups start to feel the effects of hyper growth attitudes and not too much investment in other parts of their business. I don't know. That feels like what what's happening next. We'll see that when it happens until then equity is out of here. We did four episodes this week because we can't shut up, but we're going to for two full days. We are back Monday morning. Uh, Natasha and Marianne, as always, an absolute pleasure. And don't forget, next week is our SaaS event, and we have a space event coming up because we just don't stop. All right, bye. 